I'm Madeline Jane Abel, and this is Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy. Tropical Storm Hillary will be in the background of this week's episode, where I will be talking about a once-in-a-generation face and a touchstone of female teen iconography, Miss Alicia Silverstone. I will be discussing three pieces of her work, the 1993 music video Cryin', the 1994 music video Crazy, and the 1995 film Clueless. Last episode, I said both Aerosmith videos were released in 1993. I apologize, that was an oversight. Cryin' hit MTV in the summer of 93. I was nine years old. MTV, next to reruns of Dark Shadows, was kind of my day job as a child. This video really shaped my idea of womanhood, and a 16-year-old Alicia was the definition of untamable female maturation in the 1990s. Karina Longworth has talked extensively about the Lolita archetype that had its heyday in this time period. I won't be treading that already well-trod ground. Instead, I will focus on how Alicia appeared to me as a young girl and the place she holds in the cultural imagination, in large part because of the image she had in these music videos. I attempt to divorce her image from Aerosmith as a band or their reputation with underage girls. To me, Alicia is less a Lolita and more a femme fatale in line with a Linda Darnell, but done video vixen style at a time when that trope was just beginning. There were several music videos from the early 1990s that were shot like short-form narrative films. They were the MGM spectacles of MTV. Cryin' is a memorable example of this. The video was directed by Marty Kallner and stars Alicia Silverstone as a goddess who punches her cheating boyfriend in the face, abandons him on the side of the road, steals his car, and then fakes her own suicide to elicit a response from him. The boyfriend is played by Stephen Dorff, a child actor who was in a small horror film in the 1980s called The Gate, and then later went on to be the hot vampire in the Blade movies. Steven Tyler's daughter, Liv Tyler, has a small cameo as the other woman, and the Thelma and Louise-style cowboy-esque thief is played by Josh Holloway. The video starts with a honeyed-haired Alicia making out with her boyfriend, Stephen Dorff, in a wallpapered motel room, wearing a wife beater and sporting a half-heart tattoo on her breast. Her honeyed hair is like silk that falls on her face repeatedly in what can only be described as an erotically free expression of femininity. In the majority of the video, she is styled as a grunge-era babe with a criminal streak, excepting the movie theater scene in which she actually catches her boyfriend making out with Liv Tyler a few rows in front of her. In this scene, Alicia is wearing a white silk blouse with ruffled belled-at-the-cuff sleeves, a black blazer, and then a caramel-colored menswear-inspired overcoat. There's nothing grunge about this look. It's sort of like an Adventures in Babysitting-inspired teen playing adult outfit, but so much more Californian than Elizabeth Chu's version. I will post a picture on the podcast's Instagram page of the overcoat that Elizabeth Shue wears in Adventures in Babysitting so you can see what I'm talking about. Alicia's hair is an ultra-important component of the dreamscape that is her image. At this point, it was not highlighted to share level blonde in Clueless. It's honeyed colored, super warm, but unmistakably blonde. It literally behaves like silk. It's not flaccid silk or stringy, but alive like an underwater creature. 
During this time, warm blondes were at the height of their popularity in the culture. The cool white blondes of today was not a thing. The Jean Harlow white hair of yesteryear wasn't it either. The 1960s and the 1970s revival was in full swing by 1993, and Alicia's hair lands firmly in the Jane Birkin camp, minus the bangs and the brunette. It was warm, in Alicia's case, natural blonde. The box-dyed brilliance of Pamela Anderson hair is a Bardot-esque sex kitten look, with a level of hoary femininity that is difficult to duplicate in today's cool-toned, over-highlighted blondes. Alicia's effortless honeyed blonde is absolutely as iconic as Pam's or any other woman around. In the next scene, Alicia is wearing a floral mini dress with a ruched sweetheart neckline and short sleeves. She is wearing one of those oh-so-adorable era-specific bralette-style baby tanks with lace piping in the place of a bra underneath her rose garden of a dress. She is driving her boyfriend's black Mustang while he lays back in the passenger seat in a stupid green hat worn backwards, unaware that she knows he is cheating on her. She pulls the car over, climbs onto his lap, straddles him, leans in for a kiss with her pillow puff pout, pulls away, then punches him in the face, opens the door, and lets him fall out onto the dirt. The one positive thing I can say about the character Stephen Dorff plays in this video is that he seems to be impressed by her violent streak as she speeds away, although it might be a case of a man being impressed by a woman who shows traditionally masculine behavior. I wonder if he would have been as impressed if she made him mildly ill through poison. I would have been. Part of the charm of Alicia's femme fatale embodiment in this video is the fact that she is truly a teenager. That kind of wild abandon is rampant in the hearts of teenage girls, as well as grown women that are pushed too far. But teenage girls have access to it on a deeper level because it hasn't yet been tamped down, beaten out of them, or diminished by drugs or alcohol. I'm not trying to make a case for the sexualization of teen girls, but instead highlight the raw power they possess. In the next scene, Alicia is getting her half-heart breast tattoo changed. This iconic, independent spirit scene is cheesy, but it's also important because she is a woman getting all her Go West young man kicks out, all while still wearing a short floral dress and sporting honey blonde hair. This isn't a tough girl aesthetic. There are nods to grunge in her shoe wear and flannel moments in her look, but this is unmistakably feminine. Seeing her in this video when I was a young girl, I understood her sexualization as beauty and her power source as unattached to masculine ideas. I know that this isn't a typical read of a slightly open-legged Alicia with her dress unbuttoned on a tattoo parlor chair, but it was genuinely mine, and as I have said, there are very few things that have influenced me more than her version of femme fatale femininity in this music video. After she leaves the tattoo parlor, the car breaks down in the midday California sun on what looks like the side of Mulholland, at a dirt turnoff usually populated by Starline Tours and Maserati rentals. It's possible she's in Malibu Canyon or even Calabasas, but I like to think it's Mulholland by my house, even though there is ample evidence to suggest it isn't. She gets out of the car, opens the trunk, slips on a pair of denim shorts, and takes off her floral dress, revealing the white lacy undershirt that is so unbelievably sweet. She grabs her stuff and walks down the dusty road like an absolute badass who can make it on charm alone. Very few men can say that. 
Next, she hits the piercing parlor for a belly ring and then the diner for dinner. Another outfit change has taken place and she is now wearing a tight maroon t-shirt under a flannel vest with men's jeans. It is assumed that this outfit consists mostly of her ex-boyfriend's clothes that she found in the trunk of his car while she packed her bag on the side of Mulholland. I would have preferred to not have taken the route of more masculinely dressed the more freedom she finds, but that's where we're at. We could frame it more like a Thelma and Louise-style triumph, meaning that is just what road life looks like. It's always worker bee-inspired menswear, especially in the American West. No dusty road can diminish the sheen of her honey hair, though. A Brad Pitt type makes eyes at her from the other end of the counter. She does an amazing pout and shrug thing that is unreal and I honestly cannot describe. I will post a short clip of it in lieu of a description that does it justice. He grabs her bag when she isn't looking, takes off down the street with her in tow. She chases him down, drop kicks him, and successfully gets her bag back. Full disclosure, this scene inspired my own heroin-level activities after being the victim of a snatch-and-grab on a San Francisco bus in my early 20s. I chased the kid down who stole my wallet, all while wearing short shorts and stacked wood heels. It would have been easier in menswear, but for me, that really misses the point. In the next shot, Alicia is leaning out of a cherry red phone booth at sunset with her hair half covering her face. She's calling her ex, we assume. She looks hotter in this scene than any other. It's an absolutely iconic shot, one that has deeply informed my sense of wonder. This is another one of those stranded roadside moments that is normally reserved for male anti-heroes and rugged adventure seekers, not blonde teen girls. It's revolutionary. She is the Betty Davis diner waitress in Petrified Forest if she left on her own instead of waiting for the handsome fop to take her away. She is both gangster's mall and anti-hero. It's a fucking femme fatale for the new age. The thing that is important about this type of portrayal, especially by a young girl, is that it isn't about a woman stepping into a man's role. With the exception of the menswear-style grunge moments, Alicia is succeeding and failing based on femininity. She is a seductress. She isn't cosplaying a man. She is doing it like a woman. It being the embodiment of well-worn ideals of freedom. The next and final scene opens on Alicia standing on a highway overpass, her back to the ledge facing her ex-boyfriend and a gang of cop cars. The ex tries to coax her away from the edge as she pretends to teeter and smiles. She then flies backwards and free falls in one of the most joyous fuck you moments any woman could ever hope to have. She is attached to a cord, so it's all a put on. When she bounces up from the bungee cord, she gives her ex the middle finger from midair. This iconic moment is difficult to break down through my joyous rapture, but basically what's great about it is that she punishes him also known as holding him accountable for his bad behavior. She does this in a way that is so spirited, so full-throated, so fucking embodied, you can't help but envy her. I also think there's something really honest about accountability for men being wrapped up in the self-harm or damage of a woman's body. The fact that it's an act, a manipulation, a put-on, is victorious for her and adds an extra dose of punishment for him. This was my dream as a child, and it still is as an adult. 
The next music video Alicia was in came out the following year, the 1994 Aerosmith music video for the song Crazy. I'm not going to go into detail about this video because I don't think it comes close to the crying video in artistic integrity or anything else. It's mostly strip clubs, lesbian fantasies for male viewers, and dumb montages. But the one shot that is iconic and worth mentioning is when, in the beginning of the video, Alicia breaks out of her Catholic school by climbing out the paned glass windows of the girls' bathroom. She goes out of the window backwards, and her pleated plaid schoolgirl uniform skirt gets caught on the latch, pulling the skirt up, revealing silk bloomers trimmed in lace. This, to me, is a callback to the freedom-seeking women of the 1930s. Specifically, I'm thinking about Norma Shearer in the 1931 film A Free Soul. Her character in that film changes into a similar undergarment in the first scene as an indication of the modern, liberated, and free woman that she is. Once she makes it out of the window and uncatches her skirt, she runs. She runs full speed towards her car, towards her freedom. This seems fairly simple, but it's powerful. Women, girls, and all iterations of femme are trapped constantly by something, someone, or everything, and everyone. A simple scene of a young girl running away is everything. The next film and timeless teen classic we are going to talk about is the 1995 film Clueless. It was written and directed by a woman, Amy Heckling, a rarity in Hollywood and definitely noteworthy. Mona May did the costume design, which remains wildly influential to this day. Amy Wells did the set deck, and the production designer was Stephen Jordan. The hair and makeup department is large on this film, so I'm going to list all those names in the episode description as opposed to here. Alicia's hair and makeup in this movie set the standard for coiffed teen girl beauty. Period. Full stop. I'm not going to go crazy with a plot summary because I've never met someone who hasn't seen Clueless. But just for a refresher, the story focuses on Alicia Silverstone's character Cher, a Beverly Hills teen who lost her mother but loves her high-power attorney daddy. She is best friends with Dion, played by Stacey Dash. A new, unglamorous, not-from-California girl comes to Beverly High. Her name is Ty. She is played by Brittany Murphy. Cher and Dion take Ty under their teen dream tutelage and make her over. Eventually, Ty cosplays popular to the point that Cher questions her guidance and her own self-worth. Teen trouble abounds when Cher mistakenly falls for the hot gay guy, Christian, played by Justin Walker. Eventually, Cher figures out that she is in love with her pseudo-intellectual loser stepbrother Josh, played by Paul Rudd. This is a real love story. It's about a girl who is disregarded as being a ditz, but is really just a teen living her best life combating the audience's sexist dismissals. By falling in love with the nerdy Josh and vice versa, her character is validated intellectually while simultaneously creating a satisfyingly wholesome ending. And honestly, Cher deserves love and we deserve heartwarming. It's also important for me to say that part of Clueless as a whole, and Cher's character specifically, is the subversion of the expectations of what dumb is. It's usually anything equated with femininity or unfettered fun, like malls, hair, awesome chartreuse plaid schoolgirl outfits, and fuzzy mini backpacks. 
but in reality, that opinion is sexist on its face, and this movie challenges it by letting her be wholly femme. Basking in capitalist activities is a power source for Cher, because this is America. And as far as I can tell, dabbling in wasteful spending only signals dits if you're a girl. The very fact that she is rich is a requirement of the role because she needs to have her own power source, one that makes her equal societally to a typical male protagonist. Her beauty helps with that too. The first scene I'm going to talk about is when Cher gives her oral presentation on Haitian refugees in her debate class. She is wearing the famous chartreuse-leaning yellow plaid skirt with matching cropped angora cardigan over a delicate lace tee. Her chewing gum, which she removes from her mouth for the speech, matches her outfit, and her hair glows effortlessly blonde under the fluorescent school lights. Her hair is highlighted and shorter than it was in the previous two pieces of cultural products we have discussed. Her makeup is effortless, simple, clean, young, I'm going to read her whole speech verbatim because it really fucking matters. Cher says, So, okay, like right now, for example, the Haitians need to come to America. But people are all like, what about the strain on our resources? But it's like when I had this garden party for my father's birthday, right? I said RSVP because it was like a sit-down dinner. But people came that did not RSVP. So I was like totally bugging. I had to haul ass to the kitchen, redistribute the food, squish in extra place settings. But by the end of the day, it was like the more the merrier. And so if the government can just get into the kitchen, rearrange some things, we could certainly party with the Hadians. And in conclusion, may I please remind you that it does not say RSVP on the Statue of Liberty. This joyous speech is met with raucous applause, and then Cher pops her bubblegum back in her mouth and squeals. This is one of the best examples of an argument for vocal fry that I have ever seen. Bring back mall culture, bubblegum, and unapologetically bubbly blondes, please. For me, it is revelatory to see a young woman lean into all that society despises and dismisses about women. This isn't playing dumb. This is being fucking awesome. Next up is a scene that perfectly illustrates this film's complete commitment to not shaming Cher for succeeding based on beauty and charm. Because let's face it, as a beautiful young woman, it really doesn't matter how smart she is. It is her beauty that people will be influenced by for good or bad. Cher walks into her father's study, wearing one of the best outfits of the whole film, a black pleated short skirt with a creamy white sweater set and a sheer scrunchie worn in her low ponytail. Her father is looking at her report card, which she managed to negotiate her way up to better grades over the past week. She asks her dad if he is proud, and he says, Honey, I couldn't be happier than if these were based on real grades. I love this moment, because it's so clearly stated by her father that persuasion is what is valued in a man's world. She is not made to feel dumb for winning, or shamed for her beauty, like she would likely be by a more naive chauvinist. The final scene I'm going to talk about is when Cher is robbed at gunpoint in front of the now iconic Circus Liquors. She is wearing a red satin alaya dress with a brocaded peplumed jacket with a feather boa collar. 
Her shoes are of the strappy, satin variety, a little worse for the wear after Travis, the skater dude at the Val party, spilt beer on them. Elton, played by Jeremy Sisto, offers to drive Cher home. In the car, he makes an aggressive pass, won't take no for an answer, tells her she has been sending signals, and then when she gets out of the car to prevent further assault, he leaves her in the parking lot. A man comes out of the shadows and holds a gun to her head. He makes her lay face down on the ground. She protests, stating that her dress is an important designer. This does not sway him, given that women's desires, dresses, and bodies are literally only there to be used or destroyed by men. The thief's reaction is on brand with societal norms. Let's not forget that red satin is the most potent symbolism for female sexuality that I can think of, and making Cher lay face down so he can steal from her with a phallic symbol of death is picture perfect. This is what Cher, and by extension all teen girls can expect growing up will be like. This is the glorious and important thing about teenage girls. They represent what women are before they are destroyed by men and or the world of men. There is no preventing the damage that will ensue after the threshold of pain is exceeded. That's just womanhood. After Cher is finished counting to 100, as instructed by the man with the gun, she gets up and calls her stepbrother Josh from a payphone. Josh receives the call while in bed with a beret-wearing brunette who recently attempted to go red. She rolls her eyes and accompanies Josh to pick up his kid sister in the valley. On the car ride home, Josh and the anonymous Francophile argues about Shakespeare or something else deeply offensive in its dismissal of what Cher has just been through. Cher tries to join in the conversation, making a point based on the film version of Hamlet. The brunette, attempting to be a redhead, immediately dismisses Cher and treats her like a dumb slut without any fucking reason other than her blonde hair and designer boa jacket. I fucking hate this bitch. When they arrive at the woman-hating academics apartment complex, Cher waits in the car while Josh walks her to her door. They kiss. Cher says, in the form of a thinking voiceover, Ew, my life is turning into a bigger disaster than Malibu, which is currently going through a disaster in the film. But that line kind of works in any decade, given the fires and floods that torture the 10-mile town on the coast. It's just awesomely Californian. Cher's inability to realize that she loves Josh at this point in the film is totally reasonable, considering any normal girl would feel an icky pang at being treated like a disposable ditz by a brunette in a beret, which, by the way, feels just like the initial stages of love. The inequities of loving a man are a humiliation that cannot be remedied with pseudo-intellectualism, brown hair, or a dumb fucking beret. Although, in all seriousness, I understand the effort. I don't respect it, but I understand it. Cher is left with no defenses, only a hot satin dress and a fully embodied blonde that will shine no matter how many pat dismissals she is made to bear, which, if I am being honest, is probably a higher number than we can quantify. Of course, we know in the end that Cher ends up with Josh. Their love is real, even though he partakes in aspects of the culture that actively deny Cher's right to exist in her full glory. We can at least say on behalf of Josh that he finally learns his lesson about berets and goes in hard for the feather boa-wearing blonde. The fact that the two are related through marriage literally doesn't matter, because incest is a technicality, not a disqualifier, in the game of love.
Next week on Window Dressing, Glamour Girl Next Door, MGM to Playboy, we will talk about Sharon Stone in Casino. We will touch on Sharon Stone's life, but the main focus is her character Ginger in Casino. Ginger is an absolute style icon, yet the level of vitriol that character still faces today is unbelievable to me. I will make a case for my lifelong role model while smoking cigarettes and drinking gin and tonics next week. Thank you for listening. Please like and follow this podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and follow the Instagram page at Window Dressing Podcast for more content. I'm Madeline Jane Auble.